Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners? Back at you with episode number 45 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, Draftnick Mark. Mark Luino here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range on Twitter. Talking to you guys about the New York Mets and specifically this previous series against the Washington Nationals. We're playing one of the worst teams in baseball. The Mets are not playing good. And luckily for us, we actually did come out on top in this series. We ended up winning two out of three games Three very winnable ones. We let game one go, but we're going to go through every single game in depth, talk about everything that went on during those games. There's a lot of storylines going around, and the big one that we are going to talk about a lot at the end of this episode is going to be what Javier Baez just said after game three. Javier Baez had some takes. He had some quotes. It's going to be on the back page, the front page of the paper, whatever that saying is. It is going to be probably the most talked about thing in New York Mets baseball land until the Mets have another disaster that happens at some point. So we're going to talk about everything here. Make sure you guys are following us on Twitter and Instagram, at MetsUp, as well as TikTok, at MetsUp. We're going to be posting some TikTok stuff over there starting this week. Make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube channel if you're interested in the YouTube or the video form content, MetsUp Podcast. You'll be able to find us there. And also make sure if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find them, that's where you'll be able to find us. I also know a lot of you guys were really looking forward to the Francisco Alvarez interview. Had these Javier Baez comments not happened, it would have been in this episode, but that kind of took over what we're going to talk about here. So uh, Francisco Alvarez will most likely be in the next episode. If not, it's coming out on the weekend, but within the next seven days, you will have the Francisco Alvarez interview in your ears and in front of your eyes. James, I'm not going to ask you about Javi right now, but how are we feeling about this Mets team after this national series? I think basically exactly the same as we felt the week before, like we called on the Mets to get a sweep of the Nationals and like start a winning streak that could possibly change their uh, fortunes at the end of the season. They won two out of these last three after a pretty disappointing loss on Friday. And I guess that was like the uh, the bare minimum of what the Mets could have accomplished this weekend to keep us roped in. Yeah, uh, we got lucky a little bit too that the Atlanta Braves lost two of three to the Giants. I don't think that's true. I thought it is. No, the Braves won two of three. The Braves won two of three? Yes. Oh, bastards. They came back last night? Yes. Oh, okay. Fuck. Damn it. <laughs> Fuck. I'm gonna leave, I might leave this in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, uh, I thought the Braves won two, or Braves lost two of three. They won two of three. So we didn't even gain a game on the Braves, which, nah. like you said, bare minimum. That makes even more sense now. I thought we at least gained one. Nope, we're still in the exact same spot, seven and a half games out of first place. I, it, it is the bare minimum. We didn't get further away. We also just didn't get closer, which means as there's less games in the season, we got further away still. We didn't make up any ground here. And of course, the Giants played poorly against the Braves because, you know, they didn't even play well against us, really. We played poorly. That's really what it came down to. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're just like not that good. I, th- I don't think this series did anything to change um, that 
perspective. I don't know that fact. Just a quick little stat from my guy Mets Metrics, who I've shouted out in the past. The Mets have played now six games against the Nationals in the month of August. They're averaging over five runs per game against the Nationals. And all of the Mets' other games in August, they're averaging 2.9 runs a game. Oh, my God. 2.9? So, yeah, I think that's just kind of more of the same, that we can't hit, but we can hit when it's the worst team in baseball. Or the, the worst pitching staff in baseball, I'll say. And, I mean, we even saw a little bit of that lack of offense again to start this series, where it was like, oh, boy, we are in trouble. Because game one, we went up against the world beater, that is Paolo Espino, who for some reason dominates the Mets and actually I know the reason we just can't hit but yeah. that's unbelievable still that Paulo Espino I don't know would be the best pitcher in high school in New Jersey Paulo Espino is not a world beater he's just simply a Mets killer like he, yeah we, we can't even touch the guy he is uh super unspectacular by every by every single metric every single concept of pitching the eye test literally Eno Saris is stuff plus thing I've talked about before he's like fifth to last in it that's not good <laughs> the guy's not really anything to write home about and he gets on the mound against the Mets and it just it looks like Sandy Koufax out there dices us up literally the only thing that we did against him was a Javier Baez home run that's it we got what three or four hits that night it was a very unimpressive showing by the offense which is something that we've become way too used to this season yeah it was uh grim it was brutal coming off the sweep of the Giants and being like, all right, National Series, this is when we get it. Friday night, black jerseys at home. It's almost time to cancel the black jerseys. How cursed are those things? Uh, they're pretty cursed right now. The black bucket hat, the black jerseys. We got to, like, maybe we got to change the hat up. Maybe we wear the blue hat one night. Is that even allowed? Can we, something's got to change with this black jersey juju because right now it's more of a black cat than, like, the black jerseys. Well, the actually new thing going around, the Mets animal mascot is the praying man, the praying manti. I don't know what the plural is for praying mantis. I think it's the same mantis, I swear. I think it is. Unless they, like, molt during, like, the mating season, which could be right now. I've seen green mantises, and I've seen uh, brown mantises. I don't know if that's, like, a female-male thing, or if these are just cousins or brothers. I don't know. But there are at least—there's at least one praying mantis who's made his home in City Field this week. Yeah, and, I mean, I guess he was a little bit of luck. No luck in Game 1, though, like we no, said. No, no. no offense. I, one thing that I guess we can talk about was that Rich Hill was, like, fine again. Yeah, he got nickel and dime for a few runs early, but he was just fine. He's been pretty— amazing acquisition if we're being honest like he's really eaten some very important innings for us and one thing i want all the listeners to um, know about this outing was this was the most sliders he had thrown any start since he joined the mets he threw it 14 percent of the time and actually got three whiffs on seven swings so mixing in a third pitch will never hurt especially traditionally rich hill has had a good slider so it's fine it was a good thing just a little bit more to keep batters on their toes against mr 89 yeah you give up two runs you shouldn't lose a ball game you shouldn't that's not the way. And, and if you told me that Rich Hill would be giving up two runs in August for the Mets in his appearances, I'd be like, oh, we're, we're winning games. That's that's great. He puts us in a position to win. It's just a shame that, again, Paulo Espino became Sandy Koufax, as you said. And we just, for some reason, I, do we maybe not know what pitches he throws? Do we think that maybe he's somebody else? Maybe we're expecting him to throw lefty. It, it's baffling how we don't know how to hit this guy. He's just, like you said, unimpressive in every aspect of the game. Even his name is just like a Paolo Espino. It's just a flair. I think it's a decent name, if we're being honest. Like, Paolo Espino. It's a soccer player. Yeah, honestly, that is a really good soccer player name. But it's just as if we face some of these guys who especially don't throw particularly hard and just, it's like we're unprepared. It's like we don't really have the capability to just sit and wait or just hit 
unimpressive fastballs. It was upsetting. Friday night, we were together, and it all kind of seemed like it was over. Yeah, I mean, luckily for us, we were having a great night out in Williamsburg, having some bevs, having some drinks, a couple brewskis here and there, and we walked by a bar, and we're like, all right, it's top nine, 2-1 ball game, Diaz is in, we got to stop in here, we got to watch the game, sat down, very nice bartender, gave us a free jello shot, which was very much appreciated, and I think he cut our bill by quite a bit, so shout out to you, guy, he's a South Carolina dude. But we're watching it, and I was like, dude, we're really going to do this to ourselves because we know what's going to happen. They're going to get a runner on, and they're going to hit into a double play to end the game. And what did they do? They almost hit into two double plays in one inning. It was just that he beat it out. Lindor. Yeah, Lindor beat it out. And then right after that, Javi Baez double play game over. It was so painful. And just such an awful, blah, boring game. Like, Javi hit his home run, I believe it was the third or the fourth, because second time through the order. And Rich Hill gave up the runs after, like, there were base runners on, also the second or third. Because I remember Soto. Soto had an RBI It was his second out. time through the order. Yeah. There was literally no excitement the rest of the game. And SNY did their cool thing where they pan over to fans, like, in the stands. And there was a group of three dudes just, like, hands on their faces and just, like, leaning back in their chairs. It looked <laughs> brutal to be there. I'm really happy that I didn't take up your suggestion and head there on Friday night. Yeah, there, there was a little kid that they showed at the end, and Gary got on the mic, like, you know, sending everyone off. And he's like, it'll get better one day, bud. He's like, sooner or later, something's got to change. Like, he was just like, he was trying his best to be like, ah, we've all been there. We, this is nothing new. Just welcome to the world of being a Mets fan. And game one was a perfect example of how this Mets season has been. Not being able to hit Paolo Espino. That's been the story all year long. Game two, Sean Nolan. Soft tossing lefty, and boy was I right. He sits at 88, and he's got no, he, another just unbelievably unimpressive guy. He is a New Yorker. I think he played with the Long Island Ducks a little bit too, so cool story to see that he's in the majors, but that's about all that's cool about Sean Nolan. We should smack him, and luckily, we got off the schneid a little bit here because Kevin Pillar remembered how to hit a little bit this game. Yeah, he did, but before that, Sean Nolan literally retired the first six Mets in order, and I felt like death. As as you should. I mean, Sean Nolan retiring the side is like something that shouldn't happen considering in the last podcast, what was it, 2.4 whip coming into the game? Yes. Speaking of that, the accusation you made in the last podcast, is anybody anybody losing their stripes for not getting oh, hit the series? That is a good that is a good point. I don't think so because McNeil got a hit, JD got a hit, Lindor did, Alonzo, Nimmo, Dom Conforto, yeah. VR, Nito even got a hit. And Mazika. And Mazika. I think everybody on the team got a hit. And if Thank God. No one gets cut. We got we saved the day there. Everyone is safe. Brandon Drury, maybe, but that doesn't really count. He had like yeah. an at bat. I'm not gonna kill him for that one. No. But just to get back to this game after that fun little tangent, yeah. Kevin Pilar breaking our scoreless streak was again performance art, as this Mets team has become accustomed to performing all season long. And the fact that he actually did it again. Like Kevin Pillar with a multi-home run game. I don't think Malcolm Ford has a multi-home run game. Brendan Nimmo doesn't have a multi-home run game. Dominic Smith doesn't have a multi-home run game. I know Pete does, and I think Lindor might, but I'm not positive. You know who's got the third most home runs on this New York Mets team? I do. Kevin Pillar. Yes. That's disgusting. Gross. That is one of the saddest sentences I've said. I was uh, talking to my friends on Discord, just talking about the Mets game, because we were hanging out, watching it, and all of a sudden I'm like, you guys know who has the third most highest home runs? They went through the entire team before they said Kevin Pillar. I got a Tomas Nito guess before I got Kevin Pillar. And these are somewhat knowledgeable baseball fans. So in, this shouldn't be happening. That's that another shows you how the Mets season's going offensively. And truly, 12 home runs for Kevin Pillar is like not a number to sneeze at. If he winds up at 15 by the time this is all said and done, that's like a shockingly good year with the bat. After an OPS of about 500 for two months in between. I feel like that's 
the like maximum production you can get out of a guy that you can ask for who has a 650 OPS. Like at least you hit 15 homers. You you contributed that way. I guess I don't know. I'm still not going to give Kevin Pillar any credit for his for his two home runs. I, don't, I just anything to make sure this guy's not in the team next year. I really don't care at this point. Big positive though was Marcus Stroman again continuing to do very good things. He was just super smooth after second inning uh, rally by the Nationals. Did not give up any more runs. His sinker did come back to the forefront this game. He threw it over 40% of the time, which was significantly more than his slider and splitter, but they were still involved. He threw each of those about 25% of the time. And the slider was especially effective this game with a called swing strike rate up at 45%. So he just keeps doing it. He's got multiple off-speed pitches. He keeps the hitters off balance. Used a lot of sinkers, but against a national scene that really can't hurt you that bad, like you might as well just use sinkers and like stay efficient, keep that pitch count low. And very surprisingly, not surprisingly, but just surprisingly to hear Marcus Stroman's name mixed in with this group of pitchers, this was Stroman's 20th start of the year, allowing two earned runs or fewer. We want, we want to keep that stat on the down low there. We don't want Stroman to hear these and start asking for a little more money on the market. Because you start throwing your name around with these, you're looking for probably more than just the qualifying offer back. And that's totally up to his agent. I'm sure Marcus Stroman is very, very aware of all of his accolades. He seems very plugged in. But 20 start of the year, allowing two earned runs or fewer. That is third in baseball, only trailing Walker Bueller and Kevin Gausman. Who are two Cy Young candidates. Gausman not as much now because of the injury, but Walker Bueller probably... Injury. What happened? Injury. Isn't he out? Uh, COVID vaccine. Oh, okay. He didn't even miss the start. Yeah. Oh, okay. Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> I was like, I knew he had he hit the IL temporarily or whatever it was. Yeah, he just got that vaccine. A couple side effects. He, he won that game against the Braves on Friday. Okay, good. Well, thanks, Kevin, for winning that one, at least. Yeah. Appreciate you. But yeah, two Cy Young candidates right there. Marcus Stroman's right in the conversation with them for quality of starts, which is really something we needed and goes back to you calling him the X factor on this team at the beginning of the year. Couldn't have been more spot on. Definitely. And the most important thing that Marcus Stroman did this game is calling out Tim Healy afterwards. Dunk. That guy's an asshole, and he deserves it. Dunked on him hard, which was great. I think Tim Healy tweeted about how great of a performance he was, and Stroman quote tweeted and just said, what, retweet, basically? Like, I think he just said retweet. He yeah. literally, Tim Healy quoted right after the game, Marcus Stroman's final line against the National. Six innings pitch, seven hits, two earned runs. Two runs, also, he stipulated between the two of those. That's weird. One walk, five strikeouts. He did a good job settling in after an iffy start. And Marcus Stroman quote tweeted and just said, retweet. Yeah. He's very aware, as we've also learned now today from Javi Baez's comments, that this team is very aware of everything going on outside of them. Maybe at times a little too aware, but I like Stroman's dunking on him. That's a positive of being aware. That's like a, bitch, I'm good. Fuck you. Yeah. He's fucking good. It's Tim Healy. Uh, and, also, and also, Marcus Stroman had a fantastic defensive highlight that I guess he didn't retweet because he knew people would get upset about that again. But he was coming over to third base. And he swung his body around, got the force out of third. It was awesome. He's got to be up for the gold glove, right, for pitchers? Like, I mean, granted, we're super biased because we watch all Mets games. But Stroman moves off the mound like nobody else uh, that fields that position like that. Like, Granky is probably the only other guy that I can think of. You ever see Keiko? He feels the position like a cat. Yeah, well, if I threw 84, I would also feel my position like a cat, too. So, <laughs> And the other interesting thing to note about this game, before we get to the end of it, which was also very interesting, but this is when the Mets made a decision to change up the lineup, and we also saw it going to Game 3. VR leading off, Nimmo 2, and it's interesting because VR in the leadoff spot this year, specifically leading off games, has been extremely effective and weirdly enough, it built into this in Game 2 and built even more into Game 3. 
I think this might be the new configuration that we rock with. If we are having trouble scoring runs the way that we had before and this is what's working, fuck it. Use it. I don't care if it doesn't make sense in the baseball world. Do it. It's working right now. Dude, I'm about that too. And this is the first time we had Johnny VR leading off since that stretch in the end of May and early June when everyone was injured and we were just playing like ragtag baseball. And somehow in some way, by bringing him back to the leadoff spot, it kind of added that similar attitude that we were playing with then. And we started becoming more active on the base pass than we had been all season long. We stole, I believe it was three or four bases on Saturday night, and we stole two more today on Sunday. And it gave the Mets seven steals overall in their last four games, which is pretty important because the Mets had only 31 steals in their first 126 games this season. And the bulk of those happened in those two weeks when they were missing all of the regular players like Brandon Nimmo, Mike Conforto, and Jeff McNeil. I don't know. This, like I said before, it's a different type of attitude with Jonathan VR in the leadoff spot. And both of these guys hit pretty well up there. And this is also only one of a handful of times in Brandon Nimmo's career as a Met that he's hitting the two-hole. And I think he works very well there. He's like super patient. He's not your typical two-hole hitter because he definitely looks to get on base as opposed to like putting the ball in play, which I think a lot of people associate with the two-hitter is like a slap it around the field, get like get on base through your hitting acumen. But Brandon Nimmo in the two-hole, if VR gets on, which he has been doing at a high rate when he leads off the game, you got first and second for Pete, Lindor, Javi, whoever you got coming up next. That is a super interesting combo for a team that has been struggling to score runs. You're getting the guys who are making the biggest impact the most at bats. I really can't hate it because it's worked now. And whatever, we haven't been scoring runs the other way. So we got to try something else. Definitely. And you just uh, kind of bemoan Nimmo for his on-base skills. But in this game specifically, he the bat was off his shoulders every single at-bat. And he, put, he hit three balls hard into play. And VR had two hits on two hard-hit balls. Of course, Nimmo was more of the on-base machine in Game 3. But he also just because he got hit by two pitches. Like, yeah. there's not much you could do to control that. And I think just being the one and two hitters in the order... Your prime objective is always to get on base, and I don't really care how. Modern baseball, you want that two-hitter just to probably have a little bit more power or just be your best all-around hitter. But Brandon Nimmo is so adept at getting on base. And Jonathan VR, something just happens to him when he's in the leadoff spot. It seems like you trigger something in like deep in his brain that he's an elite athlete and just forgets how to be that sometimes. I like it. The team needed a shakeup, and I think this was a good one to make. Caballero Loco, he's he's crazy, man. He's brought like a little crackhead energy to the top of the lineup, a little bit of that... We needed a jolt, and he's giving it to us, and it worked. Now, to talk about the end of the game here, because here's the big storyline. Michael Conforto, welcome back. Uh, welcome back to City Field. Welcome back to this planet. He hit a home run, came through in the clutch opposite field. How beautiful is it to watch Michael Conforto, one, hit the ball to opposite field, but then two, hit it for some friggin' power, which he did finally. Dude, he also came up as a pinch hitter. Very yeah. difficult to come in a game cold in a big spot like that. And he delivered. It was um my mom's favorite player is Malcolm Fortis. Anytime he does anything, like even kind of well, she'll text me in all caps, Michael, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. I think it's just because he's Italian, so she likes him and he's, and he's a good looking cat. But those texts have been far and few between this year because of how awful he's been. But I got a nice big fat Michael text last night. It was it was very, very nice to see. It was good to see as well because like he needed it. He needs every sort of boost of confidence that's possible because this guy has been broken and battered all year and I've gotten on him all season long and it's rightfully so he's played terribly but he played really well got the huge hit that we needed the Mets have not had a big hit like this it seems like in quite some time 
you tip the cap to Michael Conforto. Thank you for coming in the clutch, who also has the history of being called, you know, the guy who likes to hit a home run when we're up eight. Dude, fuck him needing it. The Mets needed that home run. If the Mets would have lost this game again, it would have all been over. The ship would have filled with water. Everything would have been over on the spot right there, bang. Not that it isn't right now, but at least there's, like, something to look forward to the Tuesday, kind of. The Mets got that uh, 0.01% chance on fan graphs to make the playoffs right now, but there's still a shot. We lose that game. It is almost all but over. And that good energy and that decent offense built into game three. Like I said, rocking with the same lineup. We're going VR, Nimmo up top one and two, and it worked again. VR had a fantastic game. Nimmo had a fantastic game. What, they get on base seven times combined together? Yeah, Nimmo's on base four times, two walks, and two hit by pitches. And VR had three hits, including a home run and a triple. It's a great day. It was a double away from the cycle. Yeah, literally. VR's triple was really funny, too, because it looked out, especially to Jonathan VR. So yeah. he kind of jogged to first base. I saw another stat on Twitter. I'm not sure who it was. So I'm not going to be able to give credit. But it took him 7.36 seconds to get to first base. It took him less than that to get from first to third. That is so long to get to first base. Yeah. You are <laughs> really so, watching that thing. Staring at it, yeah. But it all worked out, whatever. And he came through in some clutch spots late in the game when if we weren't hitting, things could have gotten a little bit rockier. Yeah, no, he he was a really good leadoff hitter, and I think, as we've said all this episode, he's probably going to stay there until the end of the season, until it's it's done working, at least. J.D. Davis and Jeff McNeil only got four at-bats this series. Four. Jonathan VR is going to be the third baseman for the rest of the year. I think that's pretty much a lock. The only way I feel like he's not playing third base is if Lindor or Baez, for some reason, get an off day, and then he fills in one of those spots. I just can't see him not being in the lineup every day. And it's unfortunate because that's really going to take away some playing time from J.D., Dom, McNeil. Those are guys who are really all fighting for sort of the same spot in a way. Whatever. We got to score runs. We need the guys who are hitting. And VR is continuing to hit. He's got to stay in this lineup. I truly think that VR would not have played today if he had a bad game last night. Or I guess he would not have played on Sunday if he had a, a bad game on Saturday. Just because he was in the lineup to get um, a good glove on the field for Marcus Stroman's start rather than J.D., and a right-handed bat because the left-hander's on the mound instead of McNeil, at third base specifically. So the fact that he got two hits and smoked two balls, I think put him in the lineup the next day against a righty with a fly ball pitcher on the mound, which is important, which does, which should lead Mets fans to believe that he has the leg up in this platoon as of this second. Yeah, I think that's definitely safe to say. And it was awesome, too, how this game started. We got a little bit of old-school baseball here from Francisco Lindor. Super pissed because he rolled over on a 2-0 pitch. He missed a fat pitch down the middle, rolled it over. But he made an impact with the base paths here, got to third base, and forced a balk from Eric Fetty. What a friggin' move there. Haven't seen that since Jose Reyes, I believe, is the last time. Like, I always see that, and I go, it never works. But Eric Fetty is so mentally weak that Francisco Lindor got in that guy's head, and he couldn't look back. No, legit mental midget behavior from Eric Fetty. It was just a hilarious play to watch unfold. There was no reason at all for him to have flinched. None. No, because if he goes, you just step off and you throw home. I mean, it's it's so... That play is you being so not focused on what's happening in this game and being worried about Francisco Lindor stealing home. You know how hard it is to steal home? It's so incredibly... If it was easy, we'd be doing it a lot more. There's a reason it doesn't happen often. You have to literally steal the base. It's not just given. And Eric Fetty... Thank you for just having no clue what's going on out there. Yeah, and it was nice that we got that one run because very soon after that, Josh Bell hit a monster home run off of Tyler McGill, your boy Josh Bell, and that put us right back in the hole immediately. Yeah, it did. It gave me some little PTSD of like, oh boy, here we go again. Like, come on, McGill, you got this, bud. You got this end. He did settle in. He did settle in, and the offense 
answered back, which is something we have not been able to say a lot this year. No, to that literally the next inning, Javi hit his monster home run. Made the Josh Bell home run look like a Little League home run. Shout out to the Little League World Series ending today. 444 feet, second deck. He pimped it, stared at it for a while. It was, it was uh, actually now hearing the comments after the game, it makes it even seem a little bit different that uh, he did that. But Javi had a good series. Like, what, what can you say? I think he brings what a lot of this team lacks which is just kind of like vibes and general confidence i'll drop this word machismo little edge yeah just like he has an energy that a lot of guys don't have but he still just swings at every single thing that happens tweet this stat out during the game that he's being thrown pitches in the strike zone less than 30 percent of the time it's crazy when the league average is up above 45 percent. so just maybe just lay off a few once in a while just lay off it would be so sick if he could be patient because, like, when he does get ahead in counts and he get, he gets pitches to hit, he hits them. It, that's Crushes not his them. problem. Like, we've talked about Conforto, Dom struggled with hitting balls in the heart of the plate. Javi Baez crushes baseballs that are eight, are easy to be hit. It's just that he also swings at pitches that are in the left-handed batter's box that he physically can't touch if he wanted to. Yeah, if you're a right-handed pitcher, you should only throw Javier Baez sliders down away because yeah. he will wave at basically all of them. And this has been his shtick his entire career. So, like, everybody knows it. He's just—I'm he, sure it's hard. I'm sure he's not trying to swing at every single pitch, but you just got to get a little bit inside yourself. And you could be that, like, superstar, top shortstop quality player. Dude, he had a year. He had that year where he was a— MVP candidate he could go if he's patient I feel like he could unleash that potential a lot more yeah but he wasn't even patient then he was just like the league just hadn't really figured it out yet and he was able to attack people more so this kind of the same way that Tim Anderson like consistently attacks people before they adjusted now he's readjusted but I dug through the stats just to kind of see if Javier Baez had slightly different plate discipline um statistics or if there was any changes in his game since because now we're at a point where he's played like 20-ish games at the Mets, like, you're seeing so many pitches on every game that those stats will stabilize much more than things like your batted balls or just full at-bats. And it was pretty inconclusive. He's the same guy, largely. He's swinging at more pitches inside of the zone, like 10% more, which is kind of significant. Yeah, okay. Listen, he helped us out this game. That was big. A lot more Javi Baez to talk about after we get this game three over. McGill, as we mentioned earlier, was fine. He was good. I think the Nationals were kind of the perfect team for him to face after he got shelled by the Giants. A nice, easy, light day. Yeah, definitely. Because a lot of those fastballs down the dick that the Giants will hit for home runs, the Nationals will hit fly balls to the outfield, which is great. That's what they mostly did besides for Josh Bell. I wasn't really worried that he wasn't going to bounce back like our friend Kate Feldman. Also, just because this had to happen against the Nationals or else like he would have had to sound the alarms and probably scrounge up a new pitcher from God knows where. But he still threw almost 70% fastballs today. He just continues to lean on that pitch. It seems like the rest of the league has really come around to his off-speed stuff. He wasn't able to get one called strike on his slider or his changeup today and a few curveballs that he threw, which is a pretty bad sign. One, he's not locating them, and two, when he does, they're not a surprise. Like, they're pretty easy to track and find a way to hit. So things are not really better, but it's a positive that he gritted his teeth and just, like, got the job done because we needed that. I think Gary also noted that McGill is over however many innings he's ever thrown before this season. So this could also be a little bit of the Taiwan Walker thing we talked about, too. His arm's getting a little bit tired. He's pitching in high-leverage games. He's going pretty deep into games, too. The dude's probably getting a little gas, which would explain, again, the command and the lack of it. Definitely. But it's not even like there's a lack of command because he's still not walking anywhere with a prodigious clip. It's that, like, gray area of command where you have to be able to locate and make sure you put your pitches exactly where they want to go. There was a play in that fifth inning 
when Lane Thomas was leading off. After he had the big game on Saturday, uh, no, he wasn't leading off, leading off like hitter, but there were two men on after Lindor picked his foot up off the base when Mazika made a nice play on the Fetty bunt, Yeah, which that was disappointing. But good play by Mazika. Again, underrated Great play catcher. by Mazika. Underrated catcher. Lane, Lane Thomas was up with two men on and one out, and you had two batters until Juan Soto. And literally this time through the orders from Juan Soto hit the home run off variant loops. So it could have been a disaster if there were men on for that situation. Just You literally have to navigate this Nationals lineup just around Juan Soto. Just make sure he leads off innings. Yeah, or two out, no one on. And McGill had an at-bat against Lane Thomas, who I don't think anybody would tell you is a great hitter. I happen no. to think he has a little more potential than he's ever led on. He's got power, he's an athlete, he's got some speed. But he just couldn't get him out. It was foul ball after foul ball. Fastball, slider, changeup, all over the strike zone, just foul, foul, foul. And eventually, he got him to swing through a changeup up that zone. he just missed. Yeah, he missed with horribly. Mazika was, had his glove low and outside, and it basically came in high middle. And he just didn't get around on it because I guess he wasn't expecting like, a changeup on his hands. That's just the kind of things you get away with against Lane Thomas and not against uh, the vaunted Lamont Wade. Of course. Uh, Lamont Wade, <laughs> Darren Ruff, please. No shot. Three months ago, those two were the same guy. Yes, they were. But now they're different. And right. luckily for us, McGill wasn't playing them. He was playing the Nationals, did plenty to keep us in this game. The mm-hmm. offense, like I said, picked us up two. Pete, big base hit, staying hot as always. Couple hits, I think, this game as well. That base hit was right after this inning from McGill. So in a situation where the Nationals got the tying runs of the plate and things were kind of tight... We really need another insurance run. I'm happy Pete got it for us. Yeah, and then it felt even bigger because Loop came into the next thing to then face Soto, right, I believe? Yep, and, and crack. Yeah, I mean, Soto's just so good. He's just simply one of the five best players in baseball, and if you don't think that, I think you're just out of your fucking mind. Dude, he took a pitch that was, like, low and inside or just a little bit low early in that bat, and Keith was like, I can't believe he took that pitch. That looked like a strike the whole way. This young man is so impressive. Keith has never been this impressed, I feel like, by a player, at least that I can remember. He is just, like, drools over the fact that Juan Soto is a Major League Baseball player, especially nowadays. Even though Juan Soto basically does a lot of what the modern baseball player does, which is, like, walk, hit the hit home runs, like, all that kind of stuff. But Pete, uh, he just has a different feel than a lot of these other guys because he still hits, like, 330 and is just a phenomenal baseball player at everything he does. I just can't wait to see how good Juan Soto was when he's Adley Rushman's age. Yeah, that's crazy. It's going to be that fascinating. Was, that was a conversation I had with someone. They were like, would you trade, or what would you trade for Juan Soto? And I said, literally anything. And they're like, would you do Adley Rushman? I go, Juan Soto is younger than Adley Rushman. That's an easy deal. Like, that's <laughs> cr- second. That's not even, that's unreal that he's younger than the top prospect in baseball. And he is the top five player in the league. Getting pretty close to 1-1 right now. It's just the issue, you know, Otani. Trout. Yeah, sure, Otani. I mean, Trout at this point, I don't know. Soto, Trout's I think, has him. I think Trout's probably still won. The best avail- ability is availability, sir. And also, Juan Soto has completely remade himself as a defensive player this year. He's near the top of the league in OAA. He, he started to do that a little bit at the end of last year, too. So it's, it's interesting to see that play out. Enough Juan Soto. Let's keep talking about this Mets team here, though. Loop, that was his one blemish. The Juan Soto yeah. home run. Loop was still great. Well, now this is back-to-back outings for Aaron Loop that he's given up an extra base hit to a left-handed hitter after not doing it at all for four months, which I think is something to be mildly concerned about. I don't know if I'm concerned. I don't know. I, I like... Brandon Crawford beat him. He jumped on the first pitch. I feel like that's just kind of like a sometimes being a little aggressive thing can happen. Juan Soto is one of the best players in the game. I like. I can't get mad at anybody for giving up anything to Juan Soto. No, truly. By that logic, I agree with you. But at some point, Aaron Loop was going to regress back to his mean. Like He's been one of the luckier pitchers in baseball this year by like XFIP, XWOBA against. 
he was never going to end the season with an ERA in the ones, and I think we're probably going to have a few weeks where Aaron Loops looks way more mortal than he has all year, and I hope that um, internally the Mets understand that he's not one of the five best relievers in baseball, even though his stats to this point have said that. Yeah, no, I, I think as bad as the front office has done at points this year with player uh, assessment, I don't think Loop is going to be one that they really make that crazy decision on. And then we just start smacking the Nationals bullpen because they have guys like Sam Clay, Kyle McGowan, who I'm weirdly in a fantasy baseball league with. That's like a weird flex, but... That is a funny flex. Sam Clay sounds like like a regular yeoman from the 1800s. <laughs> he, he plays a nice smooth jazz guitar. He had like just a really, really modest personal farm. Not, no frills. <laughs> He's <laughs> Sam Clay. The Clay family farm. They've been there for hundreds of years. They were with the settlers. They did iron work for a couple centuries. Now they've transitioned to just being full-on uh, full farming agriculturalists yeah uh, and luckily the Mets uh, treated him like he was just a farmer out on the mound and they started smacking him around the Mets got a lot of offense Dom VR Lindor all with big hits Lindor coming a little bit later in the game uh mm-hmm. it was nice it was nice to see the Mets offense actually jump on just minor league pitchers yeah do what they are supposed to do Dom had a nice ball hit hard he had a couple hard hit balls now over the last week which is a positive development for the guy who hadn't hit the ball hard in months and it uh led us into two wins in a row When's the last time that happened? Uh, it was last week against the Nationals. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, right, right, before, right before we played the Dodgers and the Giants. Don't you remember? We, the bookends, yeah. We play the Nationals. We play really, really good teams. Then we play the Nationals again. And we've won those two series against, shockingly, the bad teams in baseball. I don't even know the last time we won two games in a row that wasn't the Nationals. I think it was actually that Red Series in Cincinnati. God, that's... no. We didn't even win two games in a row because we won the first game and the, the last game, correct? I, that's so long ago. You li- that literally feels like pre-COVID. That's how long this Mets season has felt. That's a month. You don't, be a, don't be a baby. So, just went back, checked the books. The Mets in the second half have not beat a single team in consecutive games besides the Washington Nationals. But we have won first and last games of series a few times. And it both happened the same week where we won... The last game of the series in Cincinnati, and then we won the first game of the series against the Blue Jays. Again, winning those two series, but losing the middle game both times. So, still have our fingers crossed. Maybe we could beat the Nationals in multiple games, too. Maybe we, maybe we can get three in a row this, this, in this next series. Am I getting crazy here? Can we win game one against the Marlins? I'm a beggar, but not a chooser. Yeah, that is true. Which I think is going to lead us now into what probably everybody's really been waiting to hear us talk about. The Javier Baez comments after the game. This is... This is a comment that he said. So if you guys have seen the Mets players recently on extra base hits, on hits, they've been giving thumbs down. And you might be wondering, why are the Mets doing the thumbs down celebration? Is that, you know, Todd Frazier, he did the thumbs down thing. Todd Frazier's not here anymore. What's it all about? Well, Javier Baez gave us some insight. And, you know, I don't necessarily like what was said. I don't necessarily blame Javier Baez. I understand what he's saying, but I think it's something that maybe shouldn't have been said. I think it might be an unnecessary distraction to the team. I think considering that this team had the obvious Lindor and McNeil fight that happened and they went with this insane raccoon thing, which was funny, why not continue to just lie? Why is this the point where we're starting to tell the truth here? And I think that there's Definitely a lot of truth in what Javier Baez has said. And me and you have both talked about it while guys are playing poorly. Booing players can be cringe at times. They're definitely trying hard. I'm all for booing guys who are dogging it. I don't think anybody on this Mets team is dogging it by any, by any means. 
But they've been getting booed nonstop. And it's not fair to both sides. I think if you're a fan, I understand the booing. They went from four and a half games up to seven and a half back in third place in the span of a month. And that's just horrible. And from a player's perspective, yeah, you don't want to get booed because you're like, yeah, we're trying and clearly this isn't going to help. So let's talk about what Javier Baez said because the exact quote, I think, will start to give you some insight into what or why we're being so weird about what we want to say here. Okay, so this comes from Disha Thosar. Um, Mess new thumb down celebration. Javier's response is to fans booing the team. We're not machines. We're going to struggle. It just feels bad when I strike out and I get booed. We're going to do the same thing to them and let them know how it feels. It seems like this is something that some players in the Mets might be taking a little bit too personally. But on the other side of that, I think getting booed sucks. I think that getting booed, like booing as a fan is pretty counterproductive to what you actually want. I think it just creates a very uncomfortable setting for everything. It's kind of entitled, honestly, when you're a fan and you boo somebody. Like I understand like you're paying good money, you're going to the ballpark, and the Mets have been playing like dog shit. So you will boo. I was at the game, like I said last, that was Wednesday. There were a lot of boos. That's when the Fire Rojas chant got going, which I think also has played into this rhetoric, I believe. But on the other side of this coin, the Mets all season have kind of just seemed a little bit tight, a little bit off. That's just something we've mentioned a lot, that when when the whole team is slumping consistently, it has to be something else happening internally that like kind of pulls away from the actual talent and skill level on a roster. And I think that you kind of need to have like something personal and stupid and kind of weird to help rally the troops. Like especially you're getting your guy Rojas's back. A lot of these guys aren't really New Yorkers, so they don't really know the vibe of New York sports that Mets fans are demanding. And I don't know. I just think that I think this is Right now, already, only having been said about two hours ago at, at time of recording, being completely blown out of proportion. Yes and no. And I think it's so it's so confusing to say because you picked like a very polarizing player on this New York Mets team in Javier Baez. In and the a fact new one. That, and a new one coming in, and all of a sudden now it appears to those who have this feeling that the Mets are maybe ungrateful to the fans or rebelling against the fans. And I don't necessarily think it's that. It's just that it seemed like not the right time and place to say something like this. Again, I would have preferred that something was not said. If they ask about the thumbs down, they laugh about it, say, ah, it's an inside joke with the team. Like, it goes way back. I think that would have been the appropriate way to answer it. But also, I think you got to give a little bit of respect to Javier Baez for at least speaking out on how he's feeling, how the team's feeling. I like what he said about, like, we need the fans' help. We need you to have our back. Like, I agree with that. I think the fan base should be cheering, should be rooting. But in the same regards, it is very, very hard to ask a very ordinary fan base to cheer for a team that has just gone from first to completely out of the playoff picture right now. So it's both sides of the coin. But here's a very compelling question question I'm going to ask you. We had this same conversation about three weeks ago, but about something completely different about Pete Alonso using Fane's positivity to kind of deflect from how poorly the team was playing. So you don't want the Mets to be overly positive, and you don't want the Mets to be um, consciously negative. I, I, think, I think that there's a level of... Um, this is an authentic answer. There's authenticity in what Javi Baez is saying. about to say there's like um, a level of honesty and truthfulness, and that's just because I think those guys who have probably now... 
I'm going to say Javi Baez assumed the leadership role with saying something like this, especially given the fact that he has a ring and his best friend is the highest paid player in the team. And I will say Pete has definitely grown into a leadership role this year, one, by his improved play, and two, by just trying to be the positive force that kind of breaks this LOL Mets tradition that everyone seems to be, have become so fond of. We can't really have it both ways. You can't be upset when guys are positive. You can't be upset when people are truthful about how the negativity affects them. And I think a lot of Mets fans have killed both players, and that's not right. Yeah, no, I I think that's fair. I think the issue is with the calling out of the fans. I think that's when the fans and the players have a weird relationship in that fans, we feel entitled. We paid X amount of money to come watch you play and support your team. And we, this is money that you worked hard for and you sp- it's, it's time. Your time is very valuable, especially for a lot of people. And that time, especially when you got to drive to Queens, especially when you got to drive to Queens and even the time to get the money to then pay for that game is very valuable. This is something people want to go enjoy. And when they see the team play poorly, they're going to be upset. They're going to be up. They're going to be mad. The booing cringe. I a hundred percent agree. Unless someone's dogging it, no reason to boo. But I think where Javier Baez, unfortunately, is going to lose a lot of Mets fans. I don't think he loses. He's not losing either of us. Like, we're still very much for this Mets team, behind all the players. Going to support them, as always. But I think, unfortunately, it's a little bit of a perfect storm. The Mets are playing like shit, even though they just came off of two wins. But they're really playing like shit, really, the last month. They're struggling to make a playoff spot. This team had big expectations. Some of the bigger names on this team haven't performed well. And they're just getting tired of it. So to hear a player almost call out the fan base, I can see why people are upset. And it unfortunately just came at the it came at a bad time. It was a perfect storm, especially for a guy like Javi Baez, who a lot of fans are tired of watching. Like we talked about earlier, swing at pitches in the other batter's box. But he's a good player. It's just I w- I wish something wasn't said. I really do. That's probably my only take of this is. Uh, if you're mad at the fans, you're allowed to be mad at the fans. I think that's completely fair, but you, you can't let them know. I think that's the issue. Yeah, I think this remaining as inside joke among the clubhouse and now the Mets getting their weird thing to kind of bring everyone together. Like, what's that saying? Like, everyone's better friends when they hate the lunch lady? Yes. Like, you kind of have to do that right now. You can't make the fans lunch lady and, like, have that be the chip on your shoulder. But again, don't just, like, say it out loud explicitly. Yeah. It's, it's a little more nuanced than, like, just saying it you gotta you gotta be smarter also because it almost felt like gloating in a way that they hit super well but it was also against like the washington nationals like if they could have just like done had like a massive game against the giants or dodgers and they would have said something like this i would have said all right you guys like put your big boy pants on you beat one of the best teams in the league like sure good but to score nine runs against the nationals and be like we got the monkey off our backs i think is um dangerous so the players that were seen giving the thumbs down today three guys Javier Baez, Kevin Pillar, Francisco Lindor. All had pretty good games recently. They've all been playing pretty well. Kevin Pillar stole a couple bases, I think, today, too. All thumbs down. Jonathan VR, thumbs up. This is interesting. Do they get booed when they come back? Maybe it can become, like, a fun thing. The fans just boo the shit out of them. And the Mets are home this week against the Marlins for four games, including, like, a wonky doubleheader on Tuesday. So I guess this will slightly lead into our preview because this is going to be the resumption of that... um, that weird suspended game, game from yeah. April, the Stroman, the Jesus Aguilar, just everyone's freaking out. I also saw a stat. This is the longest a suspended game has ever been suspended. Interesting. And yeah, April, April, August, pretty funny. But yeah, it's going to be a weird doubleheader because it's a nine-inning game that's starting in the first inning because it's suspended, and then a seven-inning game afterwards, which is bizarre. But I think it could be kind of a fun thing for Mets fans if, like, just, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but, like, boo the shit out of everyone now. Make it, like, a fun thing. Like, instead of cheering, like, boo. 
Like kind of like when you have a guy with a name with two O's in it, they're like loop. Like it'll be funny. Bruce. Yeah, I like I like how you're trying to spin it. That's a good spin zone. Need some vibes. Need some we need vibes. vibes. And listen, if if giving the Mets fans thumbs down and sticking it to us is how the Mets are gonna play better baseball, sign me the fuck up. I'm in. If this is what wakes up the bats, I'm in. The issue is here is that if the Mets play like shit against the Marlins, it is going to get ugly. It's just a can of worms has been opened that didn't need to be, I felt like. Also, I feel like it's interesting that the guy who said this was Javi Baez, the player who's been here for a month as of Tuesday, which is not very long, and he has no contract for next season, and I don't think any Mets fan can confidently say that he will be back. And... This comes on the heels of a lot of comments from Lindor early in the season, then just last week that we talked about in this podcast with fans booing, Steve Cohen tweeting, and people kind of being upset with the player's performance. Lindor is locked into this team. He's here for 10 more years. He is the face of the franchise. He didn't say this. His best friend said it. After we know that Francisco Lindor is offended by booze, after he had those two weeks where he was trying to say that he was not. I think that is important. It's such a sticky situation. I just wish it didn't happen. It's really what it comes down to is like, if that's what you're thinking, I I think you got to hold it back. I think you got to keep it inside the clubhouse. We've kept so many other things from this team inside the club. Donnie friggin' Stevenson. I, I mean, like there's been so many inside jokes with this team. Why is this the one that came out? But on top of that, while there have been so many inside jokes, we've had so many weird things with this team I feel like they've tried to jolt themselves and get them going. The raccoon, Donnie Stevenson, the, the actual Donnie Stevenson that Pete Alonso brought to the ballpark, the fucking horse. Diego Castillo Hugh, fight. Yeah, Diego Castillo fight. Hugh Quilebron bought a fucking stuffed horse to the ballpark to try and get guys going. You ride the horse. Like, they haven't been able to figure out anything. These guys have major mental blocks, and I don't know, maybe just you gotta get a chip on your shoulder and do it. Be the bad boys. Fuck it. If, like, I'll say it again. If being the bad boys is what this Mets team needs to do in order to play their best, fucking hate the Mets fans. I don't care. Play good baseball, and the cheers will come. We, The fans who are booing you will turn the corner just like that. Me and James, we're not those guys. We've been behind you guys all year long. We're trying to push you guys positively to the next level. Just the performance. It's a performance thing. Mets fans are just a little tired of what they've been seeing. I, I get both sides. I just wish... We didn't even have to talk about this. Yeah, it's an unnecessary discourse that now is going to lead to tons of ridiculous columns and op-eds and editorials and all just fucking nonsense that's going to be produced in the next couple of days. And we're on a two-week span right now where we've lost one of the three Mets beat writers we trust. With Tim Britton, I think he's on European vacation or at a wedding or something, but he's, he's radio silent for two weeks. So it's only D- it's Disha and Tacoma versus the world, and I yeah. really hope they can maintain the floodgates against the, uh, the Mongoloids of the world. Yeah, it is going to be, it sucks, so we just won two games, but it is going to be negative the next 24 hours. Well, uh, we came back, we had to do a little bit of a emergency recording here, because there has been more to this Javier Baez comment story, and it's just, it's not getting any prettier. It doesn't have to do with the players, really. Nobody on the player side did anything wrong. Kevin Pillar responded to a couple fans, basically being like, no, we don't hate the fans, like, it went out, it's not really on the same level that you guys know it. It's not that serious, blah, blah, blah. Well, Sandy Alderson, uh, the president of the New York Mets, has come out, and he has made some really bad comments. It was just something that didn't need to be said publicly. James, I know you've got it pulled up here, so maybe you could drop a couple of the lines for us. Yeah, the fact that we just talked about the fact that Javi's comments did not need to be made, this is that times a million, a hundred million. Yeah. 
The highlights here come in the last two stanzas of Sandy's address to, I guess it's to the fans. The statement is addressed to the fans. The mongoloids really should have been addressed to, the idiots. The Mets will not tolerate any player gesture that is unprofessional in its meaning or is directed in a negative way toward our fans. I will be meeting with our players and staff to convey this message directly. Mets fans are loyal, passionate, knowledgeable, and more than willing to express themselves. We love them for every one of these qualities. That is so cringe. It just, like, it felt like he thought he was doing a grand gesture, which, like, he's right. Like, I, I love Mets fans, obviously. We're, we, we're good people, I think, at our core. We want a good winning Mets team. And I do think, like, there's a decent bit of us that are very knowledgeable and all that kind of stuff. But the weird thing and the weird narrative that's coming out of this statement, which did not need to be made at all, it was so unnecessary was that basically it's okay for the fans to boo the players. In fact, they're saying they love when the fans basically boo boo the players, but the players cannot show any signs of frustration. I I can't believe that they stipulated that this gesture was unprofessional in its meaning. It just dumbs down. Like, who cares? It wasn't that serious. Like, I, I thought it was just bad that it was talked about, but it wasn't this serious. It wasn't necessary of a statement by the team president i mean steve cohen didn't even tweet about it a tweet i would understand if steve is like ah, i don't like the thumbs down. even then that might be too much a statement an official press release by the president of the mets denouncing what the players said today while again we both said it shouldn't have been said this really shouldn't have been said we it wasn't blown over yet this wasn't going to blow over anytime soon but this has just made it a thousand times worse because now there's a huge. There's got to be a huge divide between Sandy and the players. We've even seen Taiwan Walker tweet about it now. Like, oh, brother, this is going to be fucking painful. This got released on Medium, the New York Mets Medium channel. Are you fucking kidding me? You run a multi-billion dollar operation and you're producing something on .medium.com? What is that shit? It's, uh, it's bad. And I think we've probably been feeling this for the last few weeks now. Sandy? an issue this is a this is a completely different narrative than i expected to take in this episode but i also didn't expect him to do something so bizarre it didn't make any sense this is the most out of touch sandy alderson has been since he was completely out of touch for the entire offseason since baseball started being played he is i think a lot of people forgot like the absolutely awful offseason pr wise the mets had and now he just has again reminded everyone that he currently doesn't really have his finger on the pulse of the national media the fan base his clubhouse anything anything at all it seems like he is not fit for this role anymore I'll say that yeah I'm starting to believe that too just I mean we talked about the moves that were made this offseason and granted it'd been a kind of crazy one for the Mets but they didn't bring in quality players that we thought they should have and now it just doesn't seem like he should be the guy who's running this team where there's clearly going to be a divide between him and the players now. There's clearly going to be some sort of issue. This is weird because I think this is somehow now united the players and the fans back together because I don't feel like I see pretty much any fan on the side of Sandy here. While they might not have liked Javier Baez's comments, which maybe we fall in that same category too here, I feel like everyone agrees that this was a weird step forward. I mean... Even with the fans' pulse, like you said, I put out a tweet uh, for a poll. How are we feeling after hearing Javier Baez's comments? This was at 8.14, so this was you know a good three, four hours after the comments. 35% said, I get it. 36% said, I don't care. 
20% said I am mad and then 8% said other. And that was with 3,600 votes. So yeah, I didn't ask every single Met fan in the world, but it seems like the majority of Met fans honestly don't care and maybe even understand with them. Definitely. But you have to remember your following definitely skews a little bit younger than I'm sure the base that Sandy was trying to um make amends with, with this sure. comment. It's also just like, why are you trying to alienate a guy you just traded for? Like, you just gave up one of the be- seven or six best prospects in your entire system, and you're immediately for Javier Baez, and you're immediately throwing the guy under the bus at the first stitch of adversity. Yeah, I, I, I didn't like Javier Baez's comments. I think that's, like, obvious, but it just, it was, these are way worse. These are way worse. It is completely thrown under the bus. This is something you do behind closed doors. Nobody needs to hear about it. I don't understand this obsession with the New York Mets and airing their dirty laundry to everybody, uh, the national media. They're like, there's a problem. Let's make it even bigger now. Let's tell people what's really wrong. Let's make this super tense because, I mean, we're at the point now where Steve Cohen clearly has to have a meeting with these players, and it's going to be like, it's probably going to be a little ugly, I would assume. And this also completely counteracts every single thing I said that could possibly be positive about this is like giving the players like a weird thing to like lean back on just some zany shit. What? We just got a Steve Cohen tweet. Nice. Breaking news. We just got a Steve Cohen tweet. Breaking news. 1035. I missed the days when the biggest controversy was the black jerseys. (laughs) That's that's kind of funny. (laughs) Classic Steve Cohen. He... The jokester. I like... I think that's a... Is it a good response? I, I like it. I feel like it just kind of like makes it seem like he might not have really been behind what Sandy said, that it shouldn't be this serious. That's a non-serious tweet, which makes me believe that he doesn't really care that much. But then how could Sandy have said this? Because he's the president of the team. So you you don't think that the president contacted the owner before releasing a public statement on behalf of the organization that said owner owns? I mean, I would hope he did, but I feel like Steve Cohen has said he wants to be kind of hands-off and that he kind of gave Sandy the keys to run it. I don't think he's hands off at all based on what we've actually seen. That was something that was said over six months ago. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, it's weird. Everything's so weird right now in Mets world. It was, it's been a weird month. This is the weirdest ending to a Mets month we've had in, I, I can't even remember the last time it's been this strange in Mets world. Like, we have a player calling out the fans. The fans are a little mad, but they also get it. They also understand. There's some sympathy, or sympathy on both sides here. And just when it starts to kind of seem like it's dying in the national news, like it's obviously still going to be headlines, but it seems like the conversation has stopped. Sandy Alderson comes out and makes this this press release and just completely throws the team under the bus, thinking that he's like just like protecting the fans, but... So weird, man. It seems like just... it doesn't even seem like he did it to protect the fans. I feel like he did this for that small sector of fans who are like kind of mean and entitled and ornery, the exact type of people that we started this podcast to try and phase out of Mets world. The people who just are going to be miserable no matter what. So why are you catering to them? It's super weird when you see, uh, I know not necessarily, you're not the biggest fan of this guy, but KFC have a super um, normal take. Uh, I will say this, Mets fans have exposed themselves as the absolute worst of the worst in MLB this season. If there's one thing I would love, it would be for the team to go on a run while telling the asshole fans to fuck off. That would be my dream. While I don't think that the Mets fans have exposed themselves as the worst fan base in baseball, like I think that's a little drastic, I think the idea of the Mets going on a run telling the asshole fans, which it seems like that's who Sandy was trying to protect here, to fuck off, I mean, this might even be more fire to add or fuel to add to the fire now. Like, this is... 
what bizarro world do we live in? I thought this is a Will Pond problem. This is a Will Pond thing that's happening right now, and it's happening under Cohen. It's so strange. It's it's not that strange. It's been happening for the last couple of weeks now. This is kind of we're just stuck in the same rut that we've always been inside of. We should have known something was wrong when in spring training, uh, the Mets caught a ball when they were shagging flies and pretended like it was Game Seven of the World Series and had a full on celebration on the field. Like this shit. I don't even know where like the mental state of any of the people in this organization are at. I, I don't. I will say uh, people are not happy about Steve Cohen's tweet. I mean, yeah, why would anybody be super happy about the owner just like cracking jokes when the team is going to shit and the players are openly feuding with the fans and the president is openly telling them what they can and cannot do with their hands? So bizarre, man. This is so weird. I hate that we had to come back and talk about this. We... You texted me, you're like, we got to get back on the mics. And I'm like, I'm seeing it right now. And then I was like, what are you thinking? Like, we got to do it. (laughs) Because somehow this story has gotten even crazier. 2021, what a fucking year to be a Mets fan. I almost feel like it could still get crazier. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. There's a good chance we come back here. There might be a random drop at some point midweek when Sandy gets fired. Sandy gets relieved of his duties. Something's happening. I don't feel like this is the end of the story here. I feel like there's going to be more... I just, I'm afraid to see what that next step is going to be. What do you think is going to happen the next game? Do you think the Mets are going to do the thumbs down thing? The players? Weird take. The fans do thumbs down too. Everyone just joins in. Maybe Sandy is reunifying the players and the fans by doing something incredibly dumb. Well, that's what I was saying earlier. I'm like, is this a weird way that this is somehow bringing the fans and the players back together after there was a little bit divide today? Like, is, is that possible? Am I trying to spin zone this thing too much? It's like a Phil Jackson tactic. It is. It's like some Zen Master shit over there. That's that's 2,000 IQ, but I just, I don't want to give Sandy credit for that. I don't think it is. I don't think that was his plan at all. I think his plan, like you said, was to get the people who were furious that honestly, like, whatever, who cares, it seemed like the average fan didn't like what they said, but got over it pretty quickly. It's almost like this story would have been a nice 36-hour thing until we played the next game, and now it has become... Headline national news, Sports Center, uh, First Take, Skip and Shannon. Everyone's gonna be talking about this on Monday morning now. One of the one of the few Monday mornings we have left before we get swept up into the the mess of football. This is a uh, very reminiscent of the early '90s teams where there was a lot of players that the fans didn't like and the players didn't like the fans. This is getting really ugly. It's just not looking good in Mets world right now. Remember when this team was fun? Remember when we were gonna hang bang- banners for great chemistry and being fun? That was the last what, episode. That was the last episode. It feels like a completely different world right now. I wonder if all the players inside the clubhouse are unified, or if they were before the Sandy Alderson statement, because now I'm sure they are. But I wonder if everybody was on board with this thumbs-down fan thing, because it seemed like there might have been something of a divide within, just because not everyone was doing it. I think something like this definitely brings the team together. I think if there was any division, I think that somehow, some way, this is helping that, which... Again, that can't possibly have been Sandy's goal was to be like, uh, make the enemy so that everyone gets together because you all hate one person. You hate the same person, so you're friends. A friend of a, was it a friend of a, an enemy? Is an a, enemy of my enemy is my friend. There it is. Yes, that's, that's the saying. I don't know, man. I really, I don't know what to do anymore right now. This is not what I expected to do on the podcast. I saw two wins by the Mets against the Nationals. So I went, hey, nice. 
we could be a little positive today. We could talk about all the things that the Mets did right. It's going to be easy. And this has turned into a two-recording episode, which we've never done before. Well, never on accident. Yeah, that's true. Never on accident. But, oh, man. All right. We're going to keep listening. We're going to keep looking out, seeing how this thing goes. Not having a game on Monday against the Marlins, which will now lead us into that series preview, is a Mm -hmm. positive and a negative. A positive because there's kind of a day off. Everyone kind of gets to relax. Deep breath. It's going to be okay. Negative, there's another 24 hours that this story is going to fester and we will not have a single comment until then. That is, the media is going to run wild with this. You know how we stop it? We play well against the Marlins. So what are our pitching matchups looking like? How are we matching up against this Marlins team who is not good, but they're good enough to beat us, that's for sure. It's kind of hard to find a preview of the matchups because... There is nowhere that the two games on Tuesday are listed. Both Fangrass, ESPN, MLB.com have listed as one game because it's a pre, it's a resumption of a suspended game. So I'm sure Taiwan Walker is going to start that game because Tuesday's his day. So I'd rather him start the uh, the nine inning game than the seven inning game. He's going to be opposed probably by Edward Cabrera, the Marlins' new rookie. He's got some sick stuff. It's pretty good. He's sick stuff, but it didn't really show up as like sick sick. In his debut, he wasn't really getting many whiffs or many strikeouts. And the slider that's come to the majors and has assumedly been plus-plus just looked fine. Again, he has an electric fastball, and he mixed in a changeup, so he's a good pitcher. And then the sec- the second game, there's a chance that this is when Trevor Rogers is activated after he's dealt with a slew of family emergencies, and he's going to be opposed by probably Trevor Williams in the seven-inning game. Or maybe the Marlins will flop that and have Trevor ready for the nine-inning game, the Cabrera for the seven-inning game. But those are likely the two Marlins pitchers you see on Tuesday. So those guys are both pretty electric. I would say generally the Marlins might have the pitching advantage of both of those games if Rodgers yeah. opposes Walker. Trevor Rodgers uh, beat us in a shutout against Jacob DeGrom earlier this year. So he's a very, very solid pitcher if he's on the mound. He is sick. This month off has probably taken him out of the rookie of the year running. And it's a benefit to the Mets that we're going to get to see him first after a month off. So that's not that bad. Then on Wednesday, we've got Carlos Carrasco facing off against Zach Thompson. Zach Thompson, who had a very good start to his career as a starter, but has really just not missed any bats in the last three weeks. He's doing those, like, three-walk, five-strikeout games. Yeah. Two walks, four-strikeout games. So you got to get to this guy, put the bat on the ball, put it in play, get past Carlos Carrasco's first inning home run, scores and runs for the boy as he continues to ascend. And then Thursday, series will close out Rich Hill versus Sandy Alcantara. And Sandy's sick. Yeah, that's, that's a bad matchup for the Mets. He's crushed the Mets a few times. Even when he wasn't very good, he used to handle the Mets with ease. And now he's taken another step this, this season as he has for basically the last three years as a pitcher. Marlins, for all their warts, have an incredible pitching staff. Yep. A wealth of options. Which is like kind of the worst thing that we could run into is good pitching. We need yeah. If we can't hit Paolo Espino, again, it's going to be tough to hit guys like Sandy Alcantara and Edward Cabrera. But... Listen, the Mets, they ended the series hot against the Nationals, so I'm going to keep it positive here, as there's been a little bit of negative this episode because of you know some comments that have been made, but I'm going to try to keep it positive. This Mets team, maybe this is what they needed. Maybe they needed a little edge. Maybe they need a chip on their shoulder like you said, James. They needed something, and it has been working these last few games. Let's keep it going against this Miami Marlins team. You got to take three or four. You got to take three or four to have a shot still. This, there's, there's no more games left. We're getting into the final month of the season here. We're getting into September. If you want to make up seven and a half with what, 20, 30 games left? 32. Yeah, seven and a half with 32 games left. You're going to need to win almost all of them. So it's going to be an exciting last month of the season. It's going to be exciting to see how this Mets team reacts when they get back in City Field on Tuesday against the Marlins. It'll be interesting to see how the fans react. 
And of course, we will be talking about it as we always are. Make sure you guys follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MetsUp, YouTube channel, MetsUp Podcast, TikTok at MetsUp, content going out everywhere. Make sure you drop us a follow. Follow me on Twitter at GiraffeNeckMark. James Jeter had no range. He's always got your stats. You want to follow him, drop him one over there. Make sure you guys are listening to us Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Drop us a five star rating, drop us a review. It really does help our podcast grow. And I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up here. Episode number 45, the Pedro Martinez episode. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for watching. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Messed Up Podcast. Peace out. Thanks, everyone. See you later.